are the factor. Okay, okay. Welcome to the factor. This is the sh the I like it. Um, this is the show where we talk to remarkable people who have done remarkable things and were the factor in their journey to success or failure or somewhere in between. And today I am so excited because I have one of the coolest guests in the world who has one of the most remarkable journeys that I've ever heard. And I'm excited to learn more about Tracy Lawrence of Choose and many, many more things. And mm -hmm. Tracy, for you, I wore my Aloha shirt. It's the closest <laughs> thing I had to a Hawaiian shirt. You're close enough. It's island vibes. <laughs> it's island vibes. Thank you. It's Aloha. That's what I figured. By the way, do you know where this t-shirt happens to be referencing? It's a movie. Mm. No. Um, Step Brothers. Do you remember Step Brothers with Will Ferrell and... It's no. great. It's, oh, you got to Okay. Put it on your list. Watch list. Yes. No, seriously. Watch <laughs> I have list. A very long watch list right now. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, and it must not be too hard to get to your watch list because at, can you show us where you're dialing in from right now? I think, can yeah. you turn your camera around? Yeah. That, do you mind? This, this is no, I don't mind. Cause you're in Silicon Valley, right? Oh wait, that's not Silicon Valley. That's weird. That's not Austin. It's like flooded or something. <laughs> nah, I have escaped. I'm like a recovering workaholic escaped to Hawaii. So I'm here in Honolulu. I'm, wa I'm watching the surf right now. You know, this is fun, but I'm, I'm waiting for my break to light up so I can go surfing after this. Oh, that's perfect. Well, you're definitely going surfing after this, hopefully inspired and enlightened. So I I'll make sure we don't keep you too long, but it's going to be a really fun show. We're going to have a really neat chat. Um, we can be vulnerable. We can be intimate. I want to hear your whole story. And I actually have some questions prepared for you. And then we're going to do something new on this episode of The Factor, since The Factor is a startup in a startup in a startup inception. Um, okay. We're going to give a company that is in the stage that you and I have both been in more than once, which is pitching for their seed round. So uh, we have a founder who's going to join us with another, and there's going to be another investor um, today from Sparrow who's going to jump into the show, I don't know, in 30 minutes or so, and they're going to pitch us. But here's what's different. You're not funding them. Um, you have no future stake unless you want to get involved with the company. So you and I, and I don't have any, so yeah. we're going to give this founder the straight dope. Something we don't get a lot of. You know, there's a lot of games when you're a startup founder and you're pitching. Right. Like, oh, I love your company. This is great, but I can't invest. Just talk to me next time, right? Like you want to hear what's real, what's not real, so you can improve. So we're going to give this founder the straight dope. Deal? Love it. Let's do right. it. Okay, cool. All right, so let's kick off. I've got some questions for you. Um, the first one might be a nice long answer, so feel free to, to go deep. Um, I want to hear the story of Choose, your company. Uh, all I know is that you're the founder of the company. Um, it was in the food delivery space, the space I came from. Yep. And you did a couple things different. You had some very sexy cities, some great investors, and you had lots of customers. And you most recently sold the company. So that's a quick overview. But tell me the real story about Choose. Yeah. So, you know, really, it, it started, my parents are entrepreneurs. So I'm from L.A., and they started a company together and they used to come home and they, over the dinner table, they'd be talking about HR and costs of goods sold. And I was like, enough, I'm never going to be an entrepreneur because I want to talk about food, you know, and I don't want to bring work back to the dinner table. And so I, uh, 
over time though, I was always kind of starting things. I, I started a Pokemon trading business when I was like in elementary school. I almost got kicked out of school. I started like political groups, you know, in, in high school. And then in college, that's actually where I started the first version of Choose. It was called the Dish Dash. And the whole point was I went to USC, fight on, and I really, really wanted people to fall in love with downtown LA. But at the time, downtown LA was not cool. Nobody wanted to go down there. So I started to explore, how do we help get people out to the uh, restaurants of downtown LA? And I tinker around with some ideas, but at the point that I was about 19 or 20, the restaurants were telling me, look, you know, what we really want is that catering business. Like there's all these student organizations and offices that are catering. How do we get to them? And then I'm speaking to these student orgs and they're like, look, we're sick of Panera. We're sick of Subway. Like, why can't we help someone out more locally? And I thought this is the perfect place to build a marketplace. And so it was about that time that I started with an e-fax line for 10 bucks a month and a nice. Microsoft Word document. And I just built this template. And I just started and I went to the restaurants. I said, look, if I start to bring you business, will you give me a cut? You know, and I think I started with like an 8% commission and they were like, yeah, why not? And I built the first 200 orders, just hacking it through word documents and an e-fax wow. line. Cause everybody was using fax at the time. That's right. Restaurants were still using fax. That's everybody, a true, right? That's the true MVP. There's a lesson in there for founders. You did a Word doc and an eFax, two things that already existed on your computer. They were free. You didn't totally. rely on, I need this software stack and I need, oh, if only I had this. You just did it and went and sold customers. Right. And, and that's the thing. A lot of founders I speak to who are non-technical get really nervous about this because they're like, oh, I need my technical founder to get to proof of concept. But that's not always true. You know, unless you're building a pure social network online, you can actually hack a lot of stuff and generate revenue and investors and, you know, founders should love revenue first, right? Because that's a really good, strong side of market validation. So, so I, I ran with that and I ended up, I didn't even think I was going to raise money for it. You know, I just, I started pursuing it. I started to get more customers and then I ended up, I was working with engineers to build a platform and the first few didn't work out. And then I finally met who was going to be my co-founder. His name is Jeff. And I worked with him for four months and I absolutely loved working with him. I mean, loved it. We, our communication was amazing. He was willing to step in and take on customer service and accounting. He explained things to me and he didn't, you know, belittle me. He was, you know, when I wanted to understand the stack, he would sit me down, he'd walk me through it. He was very patient. And that was kind of the, our dating period for us to figure out, are we going to be co-founders or not? And then after four months, we became co-founders. And I highly recommend to anybody who is looking for their co-founder, start working with them as a contractor first. I paid him. And then when he became a co-founder, I didn't pay him, but initially, <laughs> and I paid him in equity, you equity know, and then we yeah. split. but but in the beginning, I actually, I think it's worth it. You don't have to go in and get married immediately. Start working with them and make sure that that chemistry is there and a minimum 90 days because people can, you can still have a honeymoon period with someone and then all of a sudden that like terrible side comes out, but you've already done all the splits of equity. That's right. not a situation that you want to be in. Right. So Good advice. I, so I did that with Jeff and then he was the one that kind of lit the spark in me. He said, we've got an idea. 
we've got something and more than an idea we have validation now we need to put gas onto it and we need to ignite it and i and i was like what do you mean like loan sharks he's like no 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 like venture capital oh who knows oh, oh, oh. Funny, funny you said that <laughs> and i was like venture capital and so uh, real talk okay we're in la we're out in santa monica so silicon beach and this was again about 10 years ago and i tried to raise money i just graduated from college and i couldn't raise a penny not one dime people would barely pay for the coffee at the coffee meetings all right it was so grueling we did this for nearly a year he started to dip into his savings and it was getting to the point where we said this is going to be a no-go if we can't raise money and that's when i got uh into 500 startups up in mountain view oh and so accelerator incubator yep. accelerator great yeah same same with me it changed did it change everything it changed everything oh tell me about that oh my god well so christine Sai, she was the one who brought us in and by the way i got six introductions to her i basically stalked her and i i have to say that the more warm introductions that you can get as a founder the better you know, and so building up that founder network of people who are willing to make introductions to investors is critical. And we, we don't put enough stock in it in the beginning because we're like, oh, I got to build my MVP. I got to hustle. But you also have to build good relationships. And so I, we, we ended up, we went through this application process. And then when we got in, it was this incredible turnaround where we moved up, me and my co-founder packed up, we moved up to Mountain View. We ended up living on his parents' couch because <laughs> nice. his parents live up in Mountain View. Nice. And, um, and so we were able to save on our personal runway. And our goal going into that program was we're going to raise a million in seed capital. That was our number one goal explicitly. And it went from 11 months of raising nothing down in LA to within about four to five months, we turned around and we raised a million with the help of 500 startups. And to this day, Christine Sai, she is incredible. She has been, she also introduced us to our first three investors that ended up setting us up for, you know, I think by the time we sold the company, we had like 40 or 50 investors, yeah. but she was one of our first champions and finding that person was not easy by any stretch of the imagination, especially when you have no credentials. I mean, I was coming out of college. I'd never worked a job. And I had no, I had no personal wealth. I had no connections up in Silicon Valley. I was moving up there for the first time. And I recommend accelerators to first time founders with no network constantly. I think especially 500 startups, YC tech stars, those are some of the cream of the crop. They are absolutely incredible. Shout out to launch. I went through launch and it had the same experience. Yep. Yeah. Launch Accelerator. Yep. Launch Incubator, it was called when, we, when I went through, but it's now Launch Accelerator. And J. Cal was my Christine for you. I mean, it, he, he introduced me to Chamath, to um, Brad Fell, yeah. to people who invested in my company and changed it. And it, it changes everything. That, that yeah. warm introduction and the network is, I mean, do we say it's as valuable as a product? I don't know if it's as valuable, but it is right up there in value as your product and your service and your offering. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and so we, after going through that program and raising our seed round, we stayed up in San Francisco. And that was another critical thing for us because I had always wanted Choose to be an LA homegrown company, but I got no love from the investors down there at that time. Now, disclaimer, Silicon Beach has grown a lot since then. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, that was a decade ago and I know the ecosystem has grown. 
However, I will still say that being a first-time founder and building your network up in San Francisco, where the whole ecosystem is startups and meant to support startups, was very helpful in my journey. And so we moved up there. We moved out to San Francisco proper, and that's when we started building out Choose. And, and you know, really what Choose became was a marketplace and a three-sided marketplace where we were delivering family-style meals from local restaurants to offices. We ended up focusing exclusively on offices instead of student organizations or event planners. They were much more episodic or seasonal, but offices were ordering weekly, if not daily, if not multiple times a day. And so we knew that we could extract a lot of lifetime value from each of our customers by focusing on these big basket, high frequency orders. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the first big lessons that I learned from Choose, which is find your niche. You know, get into that niche and know that niche so well that they are like the back of your hand because that's where you deliver value. And I think it's so easy as an entrepreneur to want to boil the ocean and see all the use cases, right? We're visionaries. Oh, it's going to work for this group, this group, and this group. But we have such limited resources. You might as well get really, really close with one group. And that's kind of where we focused our energy in the beginning and, and even focusing our energy into one geography. You know, with the food delivery game, that we are geofenced. And when you launch, when we launched a market, you know, we started off in LA, then we ended up launching San Francisco. And we stayed in those two markets for several years before we ever launched into eventually Chicago and Austin and then Silicon Valley. So but that was another growth. You controlled your mm -hmm. growth and got deeper in your existing markets to prove, well, to make the flywheel spin, right? To prove, to own that niche defensibility before you expanded how'd you yeah. how'd you how'd you stay away from the temptation of just wanting to go especially in that era i mean you're coming into 12 13 14 that was a very frothy time yeah um how did you stay disciplined to not go okay let's launch 20 more cities like home joy remember home joy yes <laughs> yeah, yes how'd you, yeah you know i think that there was first off there was a limiting factor around the food delivery for us because the way that the delivery networks worked is, when you think about it, if you're an office, you have a high expectation for what the presentation is going to look like. So we couldn't just use a Postmates or a DoorDash. We needed to be able for these larger customers to be able to give them a nicer experience, which means we needed a trained fleet. So that was actually a limiting factor for us, which was good. And the other thing I will say is that in 2014, we ended up raising money from Foundry Group. And Brad Fell, Jason Mendelson, Ryan McIntyre, Seth, I mean, we love all of those. I, and I'm sure I'll talk about them later. I could gush about them all day. They were absolutely incredible for us. And they're not stuck in the froth of Silicon Valley because they're literally in Boulder, right? They're right. out of that froth. And so they, and they have a deep expertise with marketplaces. And they're like, look, don't grow out of your segment until you've really proven the unit economics and the growth and the flywheel of your core business. And so that's, that was also part of it. We had great guidance from our investors, but the business model required us to actually grow more thoughtfully than, you know, a home joy or a DoorDash could grow, which is like light it up and go. Totally. Okay. Interrupting the story. You said something interesting, a big part oh, good. at least of... one thing interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, you said one thing interesting. <laughs> Maybe two. Well, don't worry. Don't worry. We'll edit out the rest of the garbage. <laughs> Thank okay. God. No. <laughs> no, no. You actually said about 19 things that are interesting. Um, but you said something that I want to talk about before we go back to the story. 
you said that moving to San Francisco, your co-founder and you slept on the couch in Mountain View, the classic startup story, which is beautiful. Then yeah. you moved to San Francisco purposefully and you noticed that building that network in the rich ecosystem mattered, which look, there's a thousand cases that prove that and you're right. How do you do that today? How does a founder do that in the era of COVID? Mm-hmm. You know, I people aren't bump, they're not bumping into each other in coffee shops right. or on Market Street coming out of a, you know, a square or wherever. Um, you know, the, the new, new founder who's down in LA or in Sacramento or in, you know, um, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, how do they build this reach ecosystem without being able to move to San Francisco where nobody's walking around? Yeah, I mean, it, it's harder. However, when I first started at 500, I called up 17 founders and I did it all through phone initially. Hmm. So there is no barrier to entry to phone calls. And Love founders will, generally founders will take the phone calls of other founders. Boom. Like the, the secret thing I didn't realize about the ecosystem is that they, all the founders I know, were, they had somebody along the way that just took a leap of faith on them. You know, and so there's this kind of like pay it forward mentality that like 99% of founders will take your phone call, you know, 1% they're fundraising, you know, they're in a busy time. They're not bad people. They're just super busy, but they will take a 30 minute phone call. And so what I ended up doing was every founder I met, I'd say, Hey, do you have the name of one or two other founders who would be willing to chat with me? And so by that way, they would introduce me to other high quality founders. Now, does that mean that I got along with all of them. No, some of the founders, you know, like, and it's not that we had fights or anything. It just, eh, there wasn't chemistry. Right. But sure. like Sonny, you and I talked, right. And we were like, right. Oh my God, we got to like What's talk up? again. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's chemistry. Right. And it leads to this moment that we that's get right. to have this conversation. Authenticity. So, right. So it's not that you're trying to be friends with everybody, but you are kind of dating to build your network. Right. You know, you're some effort. What, you're, what you're saying is put, put some effort into it. Don't yes. it, and, and it goes for both ways, right? Don't expect you're going to move to San Francisco and just suddenly bump into the founder of Pinterest, the founder of choose founder of DoorDash. That's not going to happen. You got to put some yeah. effort into it and you can do that on the phone. You can do it on zoom. Okay, cool. Okay. Right. So, right. So back to the story. Okay. So you're in San Francisco, you're in, you've got a couple cities rocking. You've got, now you've got some big time experts on the cap table guiding you and advising you the Brad Fells right. of the world. Very cool. Yeah. And then what happens? So then we raised, so at this point, so we, we've raised total about 40 million with choose. And so at our high point, so we had raised our series B and at this point, we're, we decide, okay, it's time for us to launch into new markets because that's really going to be the proof point. And our kind of magical number was about five markets. We wanted to show that we could get this built in five markets. So we launch Chicago, we launch Austin, we, we launch Silicon Valley. And, and, and Sunny, when we had talked yesterday about this and you talked about your earlier business and being able to travel around, you know, this was one of the most, I mean, it was grueling. It was a grueling time for me, but it was one of the most fun times for me mm. because I got to go visit all of the markets. I got to visit all of our teams. I got to build culture. I got to talk about what we were building as a company in local conferences and in, in global conferences. It was a magical time. 
Um, and, and so these were kind of some epic days. Now, does, does that mean it was all easy and we were crushing it? Nobody's crushing it. That's one of my core philosophies. Nobody is ever crushing it because at the peak, that's usually when people are suffering the most, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> they oh, yeah, just don't the, talk the about duck, it. duck on the water, right? It's the duck on the water metaphor. Yes. Like, look how cool and calm everything is <gasps> underneath. Oh my God. It, well, it's funny because one of my good friends, you know, you go to a happy hour and people are like, how's your business going? And everyone's like, oh, I'm crushing it. And my friend, she'd be like, oh, it sucks. <laughs> and she would just like list the things that suck. And I, I, we became immediate friends. We've been friends for a decade now because that's the real talk, right? The real talk right. is, you know, as we were growing out to all these different markets, we were also realizing that a lot of the core pieces of the model weren't scaling. So we had stiff competition coming from a few competitors that were pretty directly doing what we were doing. We had more technology in terms of an editable interface, mm -hmm. but for our users, but that wasn't enough because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, you couldn't differentiate on the core restaurants, right? You know, this and food delivery, oh, yeah. you're not getting these restaurants to sign exclusives. It's just right. not going to happen. No. No, and, and you don't you don't want to ask them for exclusives. That's not oh that's God. not the best game to play. So yeah, you were right. you were in some pretty A markets, and you were going head to head. Was this Easy Cater? Who who was the competition at the time? You know, more directly with Zero Cater and Cater to Me. Easy Zero Cater, Cater a little bit less so. They were doing yeah. like a little bit smaller events, whereas yeah. we were doing larger events. Okay, so you're 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 splitting the market. You're mm -hmm. grinding to get. So, so now you're playing the marketplace game to get supply. I mean, supply you probably had fine. That was easier. Okay, that was much yeah. easier. How did you get the customer to choose you? And, and you were, were you selling B2B, like direct sales, or were you letting people sign up on their own? How, how did you sell? Um, it all started with direct sales. We did okay. start to allow for a more self-service platform. And that was really where the vision of the company was going, that you could sign up, build your own meal platform, and, and by the time that we ended up selling it, we did have an algorithm where you could go in and you could start to make your inputs mm -hmm. and you could tell us what you wanted and we would generate outputs. Mm -hmm. And so that was just getting started. But in the beginning, it was all manual. I mean, like for the first five years, six years, sure. it was mostly manual but until raised, we built that algorithm. You raised 40 million, which is sizable. And that was that time when there was a lot of bets on what is a, you know, a I guess a trillion dollar market, 800 million. I mean, it's a trillion dollars in food. Yeah. Um, so the bet, that's a good bet. 40 million is a sizable round. What was the factor that led you to get that 40 million? Well, it's difficult if there's one factor. I will say that, you know, Founder Group ended up being our major investor by the end of it. They were the ones that came back to bat. And so I think in the beginning, the factor was probably being really authentic. And mm. I, and one of the, one of the things that I like to share is, you know, when I started to raise the series a, especially as a female founder, I was feeling really insecure about my style sure. because I felt like I was really soft, you know, that I wasn't like super fit, aggro and super fit the modern. mold of that, you know, that sharp elbowed founder, that type of right. thing. Imposter right. Like, yeah, I, I get it. Yep. Yeah. And so I, I remember when I started my series A, I took a photo of my shoes and my outfit and I sent it to a friend 
And it was like, I was wearing Converse and I was wearing jeans and t-shirts. And that's not what I normally like to wear, to be honest. But I was like, I'm going to be androgynous and <laughs> no one's going to know that I'm a woman. It's like, uh, okay, I'm not Mulan over here. Like people know. <laughs> and so I, I go into these pitches and I'm, I'm kind of lifeless. Like I'm, I'm lifeless in the sense that I'm not living my life. I'm like living this version of who I think I should be. And so I go through 30 pitches and I get rejected. Hmm. I get to pitch 31 and pitch 31 is Foundry. And I start to have these really, and I remember Seth, one of the partners, he and I had a very dynamic, open-minded conversation. And it didn't feel like he was debating me, which it feels like with most investors. It felt like he was exploring with me, you know? He was like, huh, well, what if, what if Seamless started to do this? How would we think about it? Like, it was so collaborative. And I thought, I really love these guys. Like, the, there's something interesting here. So we ended up having our, our final, really our pitch meeting and our final pitch meeting with them. And we flew to Boulder and we go to grab lunch with them. And it's, it's the partners and us and me and my co-founder. And Brad, first off, we talk about all the big no-nos the first 15 minutes, like sex, drugs, politics, like all of that. We just get it on the table. And, and it was so clear with them as a partnership that they were so close and open. And me and Jeff are really close and open too. So there was this like good chemistry going on. And then Brad looks at me, he's like, tell me what you want to build. And I decided at that moment that if I didn't tell the actual story, that I would be remiss because we were going to have to shut down in six weeks. Like we were that close. Yep. And I said, I said, Brad, I want to build a company whose mission and culture is based on love. And what I mean by that is we do family style meals because I was bullied as a kid and I ate lunch alone in the bathroom. And I actually want to create authentic connection for people in offices in their day to day. And I want a culture that's built on that. And I totally get if that's not something that you want to build. And I was terrified. I mean, literally, I said in the back of my mind, all the sirens were going off like, you've, you've messed it up. You're never going to get funded. This is crazy. Like, who wants to build a love company? And, and so we, after, right after lunch, Jason Mendelson calls me up. He's like, he's like, where are you? And he like tracks us down to this cafe. And he's like, you know, He's like, we want to invest. And basically they invested on the spot. Mm. And <laughs> it was this moment of like, I had held back. And that wasn't just 30 pitches of the A. That was, that was probably a hundred pitches of the seed and the seed two. Sure. Just hundreds of pitches where I didn't express my full story. And I think that spark of authenticity was the first factor that brought us together in addition to, of course, the business size, like the market yeah. was a big market. You know, the marketplace was interesting. It had a lot of defensibility mechanics, but at the core, I attribute a lot of uh, that relationship to that moment where I decided to get really real and kind of, and really risk it all. It was terrifying. Yeah, it, it is hard to do that. But as Thoreau said, we're constantly invited to be who we are. And when you do that, um, things tend to work out. So that's, that's, that was the factor. Amazing. Okay. So you've got some cities going, you've got this better interface, but you're head to head with competition. You're in Austin, one of the coolest cities growing like crazy. Then that's what cool happens? City. 
So then we go out to raise our Series C. And this was at a time, this was after the froth. So actually a lot of people were very skittish about food. They were getting really nervous. They're getting nervous about the unit economics. We saw, you know, the the Titans who had raised a ton of money like Sprig and Munchery. Oh yeah. They they had crashed and burned by this time. Unit economics, quality control issues, um, the there were a lot of regulations starting to tamper down on, you know, hiring drivers, are they W-2 or 1099s? Although we did hire them as W-2s initially, or that we went back and forth on that model, trying to figure it out. But there was a lot that was actually working against us. The thing that helped us became what worked against us in the end. And even though we were growing a lot, and we had nailed down a lot of the unit economics, there was a lot of skittishness, and we could not raise our Series C. And so that was basically us in October of last year in 2019. So, mm -hmm. oh my God, coming up on a year now yeah. that at, it was a heartbreaking call, but we decided that at that point we were going to sell the company because if we couldn't raise the big round, we could continue it profitably, but we'd, we would have had to pare down the team and pare down the markets and, and really go back to basics and, and frankly, you know, I, this business I had built knowing full well that it was going to be a VC backed business and that if it couldn't be that, that was that I wanted hyper growth. That was what I signed up for come hell or high water. And that is still a decision I stand by this day. I think sometimes founders can get into the journey and they'll think like, well, I want it to be hyper growth, but I don't want to give up control of my company. Right. And I say, well, the moment you're taking on millions of capital and you're not putting in millions of capital, you're going to start to give up some ownership. And, and to me, I was totally okay with that. Um, I was willing to accept it because I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn. I wanted to grow. I wanted to see how far we could take it. And, uh, and, and so I, I really was at peace with that decision to sell the company. And so wow. that, which is, which is kind of wild to say this in, in hindsight because it was a brutal process to sell the company. It was. It, emotionally, it is, it's uncertain. You know, you're at the end of your runway again, but it's not like you're going to get another financing. It's like you're looking for that dance partner. Yeah. And so we actually did find that person. They came to the table. It's, you know, it's February of 2020. And, uh, and, we're, and we're having these conversations about, about selling the company and COVID hits. Okay, we sell family style meals to offices. <laughs> Literally <laughs> the worst business model you could have during COVID. And your deal wasn't closed yet? And our deal was not closed yet. Oh, wow. And so lo, lo and behold, um, we had some very, very tense moments where I thought the deal was never going to go through. And I thought we would just shutter this thing. And miraculously, um, we actually were able to cross the finish line and we did sell the company. Never give and, up. And we, we did not give up. And it's still, it's, it's so fresh. I almost don't have enough distance to have clarity on it. Sure. But that, so the deal closed in March of this year. Oh, wow. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank um, you. Yeah, office. Yeah, offices. I mean, food delivery. We know what's happening right now, but which is it's booming. But food delivery to offices, not so much. No one's in an office. 
So what yeah. was the factor that got that deal closed? If you can talk about it, if you can't, you can pass, but what was that factor? How'd you get it closed? Most founders would give up. How'd you, yeah. how'd you, how'd you stay with it? How'd you get it closed? Be honest, you know, I, and I'll speak to sort of my own motivations. Like I feel very, if I'm going to see something out, I'm going to like see it through fully. And, and this can go to a negative degree right? Where I can work out of obligation and guilt because I feel like I need to do something. But this one, you know, I had seen the full life journey, raising 40 million, getting to 300 employees, you know, building a culture, speaking at conferences, um, you know, having to do a couple of layoffs. Like I have, I've seen so many pieces, but I'd never seen a sale before. So there was certainly a learning component but I also felt like, you know what, I, I want to do this for my team because I want to place that team if I can. I want to do it also for my investors and see if I could get them some return. Um, and, and also for the mission of the company. Like I had restaurants that were really relying on us and our business and I didn't want to just shut down and leave them high and dry. So I was looking at all the parties and like I am very much, I'm a servant leader or I could be a people pleaser. Depends how my mood is. Um, and, and I was like, I want to do this for the community that we serve. Like, I'm going to live up to everything that I've ever talked about. So I think that's what really saw me through in the darkest, darkest hours. That's amazing. Gospel right there. Yeah. Okay. Well, since we're going that direction, I want to go a little deeper before we talk about the uh, future of the food industry, which will be a good academic discussion, but let's go where you're, you're going you started a company that was based on love because you were bullied as a kid. Um, you moved all over to different cities. You grew that company to a lot of size. I mean, 300 employees is no joke. Um, and then you experienced some M&A. You, you got the company acquired. And it was how, you did eight years, nine years? How long was Shoes? It was about a decade. decade. It, was all, it was pretty much my 20s. Yeah. Yeah, up until decade. 30 so when I sold it. 10 years, which, which for those out here who don't know, 10 years in a startup is, a, I'm going to go ahead and say it's a lifetime of work. It feels it's, like it's, a lifetime. It's 30 years. It's 30, it's equal to 30 years at a job. Yeah, you know, a great little job that maybe you're a little bored at, but it's 30 years. <laughs> um, so undoubtedly you came out a different animal, uh, much better, I will say. Um, mm. But I know that going through that, and you were CEO and founder. Mm -hmm. um, that is really hard and really taxing. How did you maintain mental health and how was that on, you know, all your personal relationships and everything else? So this is like the underbelly of it because I, I had depression, you know, fundraising in particular is, was one of the most psychologically damaging things I'd ever done and, and periods of my life usually circled around fundraises, but I, I had a community around me. I had a therapist. I had a coach. I have a founder network of founders who I could call up in the middle of the night when I'm sobbing and terrified and they'll kind of keep me grounded. Um, I have a WhatsApp group called the Feministas and it's me and a bunch of female founders and we, we have real talk. Those are the things that helped get me through it. But really like, in my lowest periods, you know, I remember one point where the company was, was growing. This was a point where we were growing a lot. And, um, and I, I woke up one morning to two things that hit me at the same time. 
my news that my grandmother had passed away and then my fiance and I breaking up a month before our wedding. And, and it's just this double punch, right? And, and, and one of the way, the other ways that I got through it besides my community, um, was, was also a, a model of vulnerability with the company. You know, we, we do this thing called the color check in at shoes, where we would say, instead of how are you, which elicits a, I'm good, how are you? We ask, what color are you? And you're either green, yellow, or red. You're one of the colors of the stoplights. And, and it's to, because we know walking in, you, we call it emotional Wi-Fi. It's like, you kind of know that something's off but you don't know why. And you're like, is it me? Did I do it? And so like, I came into work basically the next day and I was like, I'm red. Here's what's going on in my life. I'm not asking for a therapy session because I got a therapist to do that. But like, I want you to know that when I come into these meetings heavy hearted, it's not because of you. It's not because of runway. It's not because of the business. The business is, is doing quite well right now. It's growing. It's because I'm going through these personal challenges. And being able to be open about it and candid I, I, I was, was so helpful for me because I am the kind of person, I, I don't have a great poker face. I don't hide my emotion very well. And, um, you know, to, to, for good and bad, right? And so I needed to be candid and forthright, but also not say, you need to fix my problem, right? Here's, here's what's going on for me. I'm working on it. Here are the steps I'm taking to work on it. I just want you to know this is context. And I found that being human helped me so much at Choose as we made mistakes, as we won, as we had crowning achievements, to just be human with my team. And I got a lot of grace from my team because they saw me as human most days, you know? Yeah. Um, and that became harder because, you know, I, I as, the, as you, the company grows, your title becomes more important. Yep. And being CEO, it's like, when I'm, you know, in a room of 10 people, who cares? In a room of 200 or 300 where people recognize me before I recognize them, man, that was real disconnecting experience. I just wanted to feel part of the team, you know? So being a human with them was extremely helpful for me. Wow. Okay, great. Well, we've gotten through question one by the way. <laughs> oh, good. And, and, and we're going to be, hours, right? <laughs> you know what? You're not getting to get that surf. I don't think, I don't think it's going to happen, <laughs> it's but good. I got tomorrow. <laughs> you got tomorrow and you got the next day and the next day. And, no. um, Hey guys, this is great. Good to see you both. And so Tracy, um, just so everybody here knows we've gotten through question one. <laughs> and we're trying something new here on the factor that's going to be super awesome that I'm really, really excited about. And we have two amazing special guests that I'm going to do a quick introduction. But before I do an introduction of these people, um, I want to know how they feel. Oliver, red, yellow, green. How are you feeling right now? Green. And Steven, red, yellow, green. How are you feeling? Um, like I said on Monday to my team, I am, uh, I'm choosing to be green today. All right. Okay, cool. Okay, good. That relates to a conversation we just had. Um, so we have a new section of the factor that we're really excited about. It's called the straight dope. And we have our guest, Tracy Lawrence, who's a founder who's been on an amazing journey that you all get to continue to watch. And we have Oliver Rowan, who is a founder who's been in a stage we've all on this call have been in, which is out pitching your company, trying to raise some capital and, and build a team and grow it to a billion dollar company. And we also have an amazing special guest, Stephen Wemple, 
who is an investor at Sparrow Ventures, uh, who has the direct ear to the founding team and does investments himself. So you never know where this section of the factory could go. Oliver, you might get funded today, but that is not why you're here. The straight dope is about something different. And I want my um, guests to know this. Oliver's out raising money and he's taking his deck around looking for feedback. He's a founder. What's the best thing we can give founder? Just give him honesty, give him the straight dope so he can be successful, right? So none of us on this call have a stake in Oliver's company. You two don't even know what it is or what the name is. And let's just assume we don't have a future stake unless you fall in love with it and hey, that could change everything. But it's a no pressure pitch. And in exchange for this no pressure pitch, Tracy and Steven and myself, we're gonna give you straight dope, we're gonna give you honest feedback, no Q and A, we're just gonna give you feedback and then you go away, that's it. And you can take it or leave it, just like Pixar, just like the book Creativity Inc., you can take it or leave it because we don't have a stake in it. Fair enough, everyone know the rules? All right, this is fun. All right, so um, Steven, you wanna say anything before we go? Are you ready to hear it? Let's do it. All right, right on. All right, Oliver, go ahead and share your screen. And um, I'm going to start the clock. And when I start the clock, you got three minutes. So give me a second here. Uh, where is my little timer? Right here. So you're sharing your screen. Everybody can see it. We're going to get a stopwatch going. And in three, two, one, you're going to start pitching. And I'm going to cut you off at three minutes if you're not done. So right. three, two, one, Oliver, take it away. Hi there. My name is Oliver. I'm the co-founder of Support Trends. And we provide instant customer feedback. Surveys are no fun. They take two to three months to produce and analyze. People don't fill them out. And at the end of the day, we're surveying the survey takers who are a very small percentage of the population. What if there were a better way? What if there were a way to take all the customer feedback we already have and turn it into something useful, like clear customer-driven product roadmaps? There is a way. Today, your company probably looks something like this. There's a customer engagement side, which handles support tickets, inbound phone calls, product reviews, you name it. Basically, all the ways that customers can reach out and say, your product rocks, or it doesn't. And there's so much feedback there, we don't know what to do with it all. But at the same time, we have the product teams. The product teams are just looking for feedback. And that's because they rely on surveys, focus groups, and maybe, maybe a spreadsheet here and there if they're lucky. Either way, it's pretty bleak. So what Support Trends does is it combines those two. It takes the customer engagement data and delivers it to the product teams as clear customer-driven product roadmaps. This is a big market. I'm not gonna go into details, but product, engineer, product engineering services is big and some say it'll be a trillion dollars by next year. What makes us unique is that we're truly plug and play. In a world where deployments for natural language solutions can take three to four weeks, we take 30 seconds. And once we're connected, we deliver automatic insights off the shelf. Roadmapping and, and insights are produced almost at the same time a customer signs up and they get to that wow moment the same day they sign up. This is what people are saying about us. GitHub says we're a really valuable tool. Peak Design says that we analyze the unanalyzable and August Home is grateful that we're able to bring all their customer channels into one place and tell them exactly what matters. We launched at the beginning of this year and our current revenue is about $2,000 in MRR. We have some really, really exciting trials started with GitHub, Norton LifeLock, Truebill, Territory Foods, and some early discussions with NVIDIA, Harry's, Zappos.com, Coupons.com, and most recently, even Nike. I quit my job as a president of a 50-store retail chain, did about $45 million a year in revenue because we had this problem and I knew it had to be solved. 
So I started Support Trends to solve all of this customer feedback and turning it into something useful. My co-founder, Jason Casamina, has a unique combination of being a ling linguistics enthusiast and having a computer science degree, and Tien and Craig keep us on the rails. Today, I'm asking for $800,000 for the next 12 months. This will allow us to add to our engineering, sales, and marketing teams and build a content team to bolster those inbound leads. With this plan, we're gonna to grow to about 100 customers and $100,000 in MLR by the end of September, 2021. Thank you, and let's help, let's help to create and dominate this market. All right, round of applause. Excellent, Oliver, well done, well done. Okay, you can stop sharing, thank you so much. Um, nice pitch, I've got my thoughts, but who wants to go first? Raise a hand, Tracy or Steven, who wants to go first? Give Oliver the straight dope. All right, Tracy's go going first. Yep, great. Yeah, so Oliver, um, very fun. I'm gonna take it from the top. The first part about the pain, I want it to feel painful, like really painful. More than just building surveys suck, right? Because what I've actually found at startups is that it does, it's not just that customer surveys suck, they don't happen. Like seriously, they're time intensive and you kind of get to this later, but like they are so, so time intensive and, and, and so you get zero insight based off of a ton of data that you could be using to change everything, to change retention, to change customer experience. So like if you could punch me with that, I didn't feel a punch. I felt like a light, like gentle slap. So punch me with it in the first slide. That's going to matter a ton. Um, I loved the product demo. I felt like that showing that plug and play and the insights of the wow really made it crystallize for me. Um, and I also liked the sales funnel. I think the only other thing missing from this is I want something that's up and to the right. And I know this sounds trite, but all good investor pitches, you'll see there's some graph that's up and to the right. And I, hopefully it's your MRR graph or your customer acquisition graph, but it might even be higher up the, the funnel. But I just want a up and to the right, something that shows that very recently you're showing a ton of traction because that I think that 2000 MRR number, that's a very static number. So show me something quarter over quarter or better month over month that's showing your growth rate. And that's what I got. Great feedback. Okay, now the feedback from the investor community. Steven, give Oliver the straight dope as much as you want. Totally. I mean, I think you, you've done your homework in terms of the cadence of the narrative that, that seems to work in pitching email the problem. You know, I think Tracy hit on a few pieces there. Really want to feel the pain solution there. You validated, you showed traction. You said, well, here's why the team. The one thing that I, I'm kind of left wondering um, is, you know, why now? You know, this is not, this is a pain that has been felt by teams all over the place forever since software was a thing, right? And what is different about this moment? And not only what's different about this moment, but what's different about you in order to solve this problem at this moment. You talk about your team, but I always find that companies or pitches that can tie the, the both the why now, what are the underlying trends or moments in time, plus why you're unique to address this moment in time, why you either saw the unique insight or you're uniquely fit to solve the problem, that really ties the story home together. That's my key question at the end is like, you know, I'm not a SaaS expert, SaaS investing expert, but it feels to me like this has been something people have tried to fix for a while now. And I wanna know what's, what's different about this moment. God, that's why I love Steven's perspective, man. So good. That was really, that was, that was the straight dope for you right there. I love that. Here, here's, my, here's my reaction. Um, I still need to see, I like it. Here's what I like about it. I like it that it's going to give me actionable insights 
from my customer service department, right? So that that is a large, you're right, that's a trillion dollar. I mean, I don't even know how, there's a lot of customer service departments. Basically every company has a customer service department. Tracy probably had a big one. I know my company had a massive one. You just need customer service in a service-based business. But I still don't see the outcome of it. I don't know if you guys saw that. Like, did you guys get, um, I'm talking to my, my guests here, Tracy and Steven. Did you guys get what you do with that and what it does for the company? Like, was it really clear? I always think if you can map to ROI, either time saved, this goes to Tracy's problem too, or Tracy's point too, like really highlighting the pain of the problem and tying the pain of the problem. How much are you spending trying to fix this problem? And then saying like, this is what we actually do. We save time, we save money. Yes. We do X, Y, and Z. And you, you, the product showed what's the output, but it didn't tell me exactly actionably what you end up doing with it, right? Or what it affects bottom line wise. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think that's the piece that's missing. It's like, okay, GitHub uses it and they say it's great. But what are they doing with it? Like, I don't know. I still don't see. I saw the, I agree with Tracy, showing the product. I'm like, okay, there's going to be dashboards of data and analytics. As a founder, you're drooling. Oh, there's stuff I can do with my, but what do I do with it? What, what did it do for somebody? That's what I want to hear in the pitch. Like, so GitHub used it. And it, like Steven said, it saved them 12% on something, or it saved them 30% of time on this, or it made them extra money or something happened because they took that data and they did that. That's all I have. That's awesome. Thank you all very much. Oliver, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Steven, thank you for coming oh, well, on The Factor. You're going to be asked again. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> That's all right. This is fun. Putting me on the spot. All right, cool. Oliver, you nailed it, and great job. Cool. Yeah, great job, Oliver. All the best. Yeah, nice and, um, thank you. you know, uh, you got two new friends in the house. So for keep sure. rocking. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, you guys. Tracy, you stay with me. I'm still here. Bye, Steven. I'm almost surfing. <laughs> I know, you're close. Well, I don't know. We got, like, we got 47 more questions. No, okay. <laughs> no, I'm not going to keep you all night. Um, but I do, I do want to get a few things. Um, I want to I I try and rally through a few things. So let's, let's talk about this. You and I have both in the food, been in the food delivery business, um, and we've both been through the ringer in it. So you tell me, what's the future of food delivery? so the things that i started to see like generally food has become so much more of an identity platform you know i'm a i'm a pescatarian i'm a lacto ovo vegetarian right i'm keto like food is an expression of the lifestyle choices that you make and i think that right now there isn't a lot of discussion there isn't a lot of conversation between food as identity and personalization and fulfillment and logistics of that food. And I think more and more as, as you start to see that people are, are embedding their own data into, you know, MyFitnessPal, right? Or, or other apps where they're actually talking, you know, even activity trackers, that they can start to customize what they want and, and start to, so I think that's one thing, right? Which is how do, yeah, and I was thinking about this a lot at Choose. How do you take people's dietary restrictions and create even customizable meal plans for them so that they don't have to do the thinking of it, but that you get some sort of upside, you know, from providing them something that's so in line with what they want and need. And then the other beautiful thing is giving that data back to the SMBs. Because right now, I think the main value each of these players has for the SMBs is like, okay, they're delivery as a service. 
right? But they're not really giving actionable insights going upstream towards like recipe creation. Where should we be sourcing our materials from, you know, their materials, their ingredients from, um, you know, what are, how should we price a hamburger in, you know, in Chicago? Right. Should I, should I be doing something that's really unhealthy, but wait, maybe, maybe in Fenwick park, I actually want to be doing something a little bit in a different, you know, ingredient range. Like I think there's so much more action and data that to these small business owners, I mean, working with these restaurants, some of them didn't even know their margin profiles, right? They, they didn't, they had no idea. And so it's like, how do you actually help like, I think one of the problems with food delivery is that we've actually been, as, a, as an industry, almost preying upon these really vulnerable small businesses, right? And extracting and swiping margin where we can, but we haven't really helped bolster them. And I think especially now with COVID, I mean, I'm here in Honolulu and, a, and we're under two-week quarantine. So tourism has been completely annihilated. The only restaurants that are open are like the Cheesecake Factories, Applebee's, oh. and Red Lobsters. Oh. And the like small businesses, some of them are open. A lot of them, the hours are inconsistent. They're super struggling. They have no online presence. Maybe some of them are connected to DoorDash. But it's like, how do you actually help the small business survive and get the insights that a corporation can get because they can hire their insights team? And I think there's a long way that food delivery can go to not just being this narrow, like fulfillment as a service, but a more holistic platform that says, Hey, I'm going to help, you know, you as a restaurant survive in this ecosystem. Mm. So I, that's, that's the stuff that I get the most excited about. Mm. Yeah. So there's a long way to go. You're talking about some things that I know we've all been talking about for a long time, especially the analytics and data to guide the SMBs to be better at what they do. That's good. Mm -hmm. Um, You've had an incredible founder journey and just an incredible professional and personal journey. Um, and you're a woman. So what is your advice to female founders in the startup game? Mm. Um, to not take the media so seriously. And, and, and really I, what I have found is like my focus is I want to empower women to enhance the narrative. And one of the problems, so I think the Me Too movement had its pros and cons. Like anything, there's nuance in a movement. But one of the cons that I saw very firsthand was that a lot of women who were kind of thinking about doing startups got really scared because they thought, oh my God, every investor is out to get me. And, mm. you know, and harassment is rampant. And there are absolutely cases of harassment. Right. But I, I will say from personal experience that that is the severe minority. You know, I've had, I've done a, probably about 300 pitches in my career. Only one was there ever anything that felt in any way like harassment. The rest weren't exactly pleasant, but that was for <laughs> different reasons. <laughs> and, and I think it's important, you know, to wreck. So, so the first thing is like, don't be afraid about these narratives of the media, right? Like, don't let that stop you from being like the indomitable force that you want to be as a startup founder. The second thing is learning to authentically embrace whatever your style is. You know, if you'll remember my story, I always was scared of my softness. In fact, when I was raising my second seed round, I had an investor who we, we were super close to them investing deep in diligence. He calls me up the day that they're supposed to come visit us um, and meet the team. And he says, I'm sorry, we can't visit. 
I've spoken to your customers. They say this is one of the best services they use at work. Um, but unfortunately, we're not going to invest. And I'm like, why? And he goes, well, you know, the thing is that this is a really hard industry. It's local. It's marketplace. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. And we don't really think that you're out for blood. And so we don't think you have what it takes. And mm. I hung up that phone and I sat down and I just sobbed my eyes out for at least a day. We were also, you know, very close to the end of runway. Sure. And I, I almost at that moment left the industry, you know, and then I kind of came around to it and I realized he's a hundred percent right. I'm not out for blood. Like I'm out for love. I'm out to build love with our customers. I'm out to build more love and connection with our restaurant partners and provide them, you know, the kind of income that they can support their families with. Shamelessly, I'm out for love. And I actually used that and, and, and came back to the business. And, and we became this rally cry around being a love company. And it was polarizing. Oh, we had people who hated it, would never join the company. And then we had people who were like, I will do whatever job the company you want me to do because I've been looking for a company like this. And, and I actually think that as, and this isn't always strictly gender lines, but sure. I have found that women in particular, right? If we're thinking of ourselves as more nurturing, and I, I've seen men like this too, but if you think you're a more nurturing type, embrace it, build it into your culture. Because that there are people that are dying for that culture. I brought in a lot of diversity into the company because we had a culture that was very different. And, and, and I think I encourage us to see that as our edge, not as something to shy away from. I shied away from it for so long. And I wish I had just stood proudly for it, you know? And I think that's also shame work, right? That's why get a coach, get a therapist, because you need to work out those kinks of shame and then figure out, okay, this is my authentic self. Now, how do I bring it not just into my culture, but into my service and my business? And that's exactly what we did. So I, I think for, for women in particular, whatever your style is, like double down on it, absolutely double down on it. Yes, there are ways that you can learn, you know, to be more assertive. I do think assertiveness training is important, especially for women but that doesn't mean that you have to lose your style. And that's, that's kind of the gift of, that was one of the biggest gifts that Choose gave to me in personal development. Gospel, you gave me chills. Um, very well said. So um, I want another factor here. You were in some pretty sexy cities, you know, the Austins of the world, San Francisco. These are tough markets and they're tech markets and you're a tech company. Mm -hmm. How did you retain talent? What, what, was, what was the factor of, you, of people joining your company versus, you know, making triple at Apple or, you know, Google or some of these other, other companies? How, how did, what, was, what, what factors led people to join you instead of those companies? So let's bring it first back to that culture, right? We started to tell people that we were, and we would say this on the website, we're a love company, right? And eventually it became love and excellence. We had two pillars and and that was one of the first things, like in interviews, I would do a color check-in with hmm. someone, first interview, and I would start and I would be the most vulnerable. And so I would tell someone, you know, I'm feeling yellow today. And I'm feeling yellow because, you know, we had a, we had a shitty month and, you know, we're going, and, and people, people's jaws would drop. 
That's and a job interview, right? They're expecting you to be like, we're the best thing in the world. Come join the rocket ship. And you're like, yeah, we had a really rough month. We missed our number huge and it sucks and I'm yellow. And they're like, oh, uh, what? You know so what? You, the, uh, the, one of the biggest secrets that I found out about star talent is that if you try to hide, like if you try to make it too sexy and everything's great, they're, they're not attracted to it because they're attracted to problems. Mm -hmm. Star Challenge. talent loves fixing problems. And so the more <laughs> that I would share with them the problems, it was like, I was like, oh my God, we all work so hard to like create this whole like image of us yep. being a perfect company when really share with them what you are. And all of a sudden they walk in day one excited. They, there's no BS. They know exactly what they're walking into. They're not going, wait a minute, you sold yeah. me this thing, but, and you just lay it all out for them. And it, I think it's, it's ego. It's ego. I think Shapria yeah. Sparrow does that to me. She's like, oh, Sonny, we have this big problem. Can you go fix it? I'm like, of course I can. Here I come to save the day. And it's, yes. wait a minute, it's my ego. What am I, yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right. But oh, you that's play great. into it. And, it, yeah. and it's perfect. And, and I think that so much of this is about how do we have that straight up candor my, I, I think about it as the anti-pitch. I do the anti-pitch, one of the first things. So when people ask like, okay, you know, and, and good, good candidates will ask like, what are the cons of your culture? What are the cons of the company? And I almost lead with that, you know? And I'll say, yeah, talk the them cons. out of it. Talk them out yeah. of it. I love that strategy. I, I do that often. I'm like someone who's maybe not performing in a role, I'll try to talk them out of the role. And if, yeah. if you show them the door and they say, oh, yeah, thank you so much. This is great. Well, then, you know, they're either not right for the role or maybe even the company. Right. But, you know, when you show someone the door and talk them out of it and they go, no, I just haven't figured it out. Give me more time. Right. It's mine. You're like, I got the right person. They just haven't figured right. it out yet. Yeah. Right. Cool. Right. So I cool. think so I think having a polarizing culture that actually stands for something, because mm -hmm. every culture I know about says we are we are transparent, we are innovative, we move fast and break things. You stand for nothing. None of those things stand for anything. They right. could be part of a culture, but like have an opinion for God's sake. Your product probably does. Yeah. So let, let your people self-select. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. So okay. that's a big one. That is huge. Um, let me get a little broader here. And I, and I wrote a quote down that I read of yours recently. I'm going to read it back to you. Uh oh. You wrote, you wrote <laughs> no, uh oh. Uh, hey, it's on social media, so. You, you, you wrote, my personal mission is to build a world with animal compassion, universal entrepreneurial freedom, and empathetic leadership. I'm going to read it one more time. My personal mission is to build a world with animal compassion, universal entrepreneurial freedom, and empathetic leadership. What's that mean? Oh, I love that you've read that to me at this time of my life as I'm off in Hawaii refocusing and reorienting myself. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think I, I divided it into pillars. You know, when I was 10 years old, I, I became vegetarian and, um, it's, and, and it is about animal compassion. I'm, I'm deeply, I don't know. I, I feel a lot of empathy towards the animals and, and so I kind of, for me, not eating meat is kind of an economic boycott. Um, don't get me wrong. I love the taste of meat, but for, <laughs> for other reasons, I, I think the, the kind of universal entrepreneurial freedom for, you know, I see, I believe so much in equality of opportunity 
and how do we build more egalitarian societies? And I find that when people have that, you know, economic development is one of the top ways to bring about happiness, reduce violent crime. I mean, it's just, you know, increased rates of democracy across the world. And I think about it in particular for minorities. You know, how do you give minority communities more access to entrepreneurship? How do you let them build their dreams? You know, because that, God, my parents, my mom's Chinese. She came from Taiwan. They fled China. And my father's, he's Jewish. He's from Brooklyn. And they both came from poor families. And they started companies. And it is what, it, like, it is absolutely kind of core to my values to think, okay, you know what, no matter what, like I have my effort and I have my energy. So I want to give freedom to all to be able to access entrepreneurship. Um, and I think the last one about empathetic leadership, it's really about like, okay, how do you, how do you rule with love and excellence? And to me, that means you can't have one without the other. You can't actually show somebody in a, in a startup environment that you care about them without holding them to the highest standard. Because if you don't hold them to their high standard, then you're thinking little of them. But you also can't expect them to excel if they just think they're another cog in the machine and that you don't see them as a human. So I, I see it as just like, like the recycling logo, it's just recursive. And I, and I wanna bring about a world where people who felt like me, like shy about it, weird, not like hungry enough or whatever, um, to feel like, hey, empathetic leadership models work really well. That doesn't mean you don't fire people. That doesn't mean that you don't hold people to high standards. In fact, like it's, I think it's a loving thing in many cases to do those things. Um, but there is a way of doing it that, that I think can match an empathetic leadership model. So those are, that would encapsulate those three. Gospel again. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I surprised you on that one, didn't I? You did. <laughs> I got to reread that. <laughs> uh, that's good. No, that's good. Um, well, I love where your head and your heart and your soul are. I think it's amazing. And now we're going to do a little fun new part of the factor. You're my guinea pig. We're going to do something new again. It. By the way, I Let's thought the straight dope went good. Did you like it? I thought it was cool. Was that, that fun? Was, oh, man. I want to do a couple more. I think we should it's do a couple more. Being on that side, we should totally, because being on that side of it, you also realize you don't remember much. You, oh, there are like God. two things so that true. you might remember from that pitch. And as an entrepreneur, I've architected oh. every little piece to mean something. I remember yeah. two things from that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Three, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's really enlightening. I know, it's so true. Okay, so the show is called The Factor, and I'm going to ask you your number one factor and some subjects in a rapid fire. And I want you to answer with just gut check you know, stream of consciousness, one word, five words, one sentence, whatever, but I just want you to spit it out if you can, okay? Awesome. Okay. What was the number one factor in your decision to start a company? Hmm. Uh, it, was, it was a need and it was fun. Like I didn't, I didn't want to go to business school like all of my other friends. I wanted to start something. What was the number one factor? What is the number one factor in your love life? Oh man, um, probably very healthy communication and tough honesty. What is the number one factor in the music you're listening to right now? Hmm. Hmm. A lot of minimal techno. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what, what is the number one factor in choosing a co-founder? Mm. Um, much like love life, like chemistry and communication. What is the number one factor in your friendships? Mm. Sisterhood. And finally, what is the number one factor to catching and surfing a wave? Facing every damn fear that you have. Boom. We're going that surfing, right? That and flow. <laughs> I think we're going surfing now. I have to go. I have to go inside the shirt right here because that's that's all I got. Well, I don't know if the Bahamas has waves. It doesn't. The Bahamas doesn't have Radical. waves, and yeah, and I don't think it has giant like hawks and eagles either. You know? Right? No, no, but that's cool. You know what? We'll live in that. That's that right. That's right. Oh, this is amazing, and I want to. I want to thank. I don't know if you. I don't know if you saw back here. These are not all my platinum and gold records. What? This is my this is my homeboy Abe Cunningham's house who he so generously allowed me to do this episode of the Factor in and I have to give a shout out to Deftones and to their new album which drops tomorrow called Ohms. I think it's their eighth Warner Brothers record. It's pretty crazy. These guys have had talk about a talk about a never give up story. I'm gonna have to get them on the Factor. Yeah. Uh, but everybody check out Ohms. Um, it's gonna be an awesome album that comes out tomorrow and lives on forever so check out ohms when you're done with some techno rock ohms tonight all right uh, we'll do night, thursday night happy hour after your after your um, surfing <laughs> session. um tracy it's been such a joy to have you um i can't i can't wait to hear i would ask you what's going to be next but i don't want to ask you i want you to just go surf and have a great dinner and you got to keep me posted on what's next for you because it's just greatness. I know that. And hopefully you tap me and I get to do something with you sometime. Oh, we're going to do it. And look, I, I'm, I'm writing a lot right now. So you can follow me at Chewish Girl. That's kind of my choose, you know, half Chinese, nice. half Jewish. That's where that That's came from. Um, but I, I mean, this is, this is such a real conversation. And, um, and I thank you for hosting real conversations. I think the founder community needs more of it because people, they're not alone, you know, like we've all been there. We've all felt that way. And we've come out the other side and ended up in Hawaii surfing. So That's right. there is goodness at the light at the end of the tunnel. I promise. <laughs> That's right. Well, congrats on a great journey. I'm glad to call you my friend. Thank you for being on The Factor and keep in touch. Thank you.